Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome Clear Choices listeners. I have such a powerful guest for us today. I'm going to be speaking to Alex Lewis. Alex, in 2013, living in the United Kingdom, was a normal guy, married with a child, living a normal life. And then he caught what he thought was a common cold or a flu. And that quickly turned into something that permanently altered the course of his life. He now has both physical changes to his appearance and he has lost limbs and is, uh, you know, really constantly for the rest of his life going to be changed and altered by the impact of this surprising disease that he unassumingly caught. But how he has responded has been nothing short of motivational and inspirational. And in today's day and age, with what we're all facing in the world with this new pandemic, I think his mindset and his fortitude and persistence and positive attitude will be an inspiration to us all. So I'm so pleased to welcome Alex Lewis. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. So I know I probably did uh, very... uh, you know, a very small acknowledgement to what you've been through. Why don't you tell the listeners what happened to you in 2013? So in 2013, I was a very, very chilled out, as you said, ordinary guy. Um, I was, I was happy. I was happy in my life. You know, my young son was incredible. Um, I had an amazing other half, but I was uh, at that point, we were running two businesses, Lucy and I. And I was in charge of one of them, and that was a, a pub um, in a small village in um, south in, south of England. Uh, I became addicted to alcohol. I was probably drinking fifty or sixty units a day, and I was also a stay-at-home father for my young son Sam. So you know, I was also responsible for this this amazing little two and a half year old. And then, uh, yeah, so in November 2013, lots and lots of customers come in the pub. They're bemoaning the fact they've got sore throats, colds, runny noses. And I just caught what I thought was a, a, a part of that. And then after about two weeks, it got worse and worse and worse to a, like a heavy flu. And then one night I woke up, I, I went to the loo. It was about three in the morning. Uh, there was blood in my urine. And I remember going back to bed saying to Lucy, look, darling, there's something really not quite right. And she said, look, you know, let's go to sleep. When you wake in the morning, if you still feel really poorly, we'll get the doctor out and they'll come and see you. So when I woke in the morning, Lucy had gone to open up our other site. And luckily, my son was with my parents that night. So it was just me upstairs. And I remember I was semi-conscious. I couldn't move properly. I couldn't put my clothes on. And I noticed that all my skin was starting to turn purple. And I remember a knock on the back door, and I almost fell down the stairs. I got to the door. When I opened it, it was my other half, Lucy, and my stepfather. And the look on their faces was just of shock and horror. Uh, and they called the paramedics straight away. And then I was rushed into uh, an intensive care unit. 
which is about 20 minutes from where we lived. And within the first three, two, three minutes of arriving at the hospital, I was placed on life support. Mm. And then three days later, they said to my other half and Lucy and my mum, they said, look, you know, he's probably got a 3% chance of survival. We think he's going to pass away. Uh, they, they told my, my mum and Lucy to go home that night uh, to have a think about what they'd like to say to me in the morning to say their final goodbyes. Mm. And then the following morning, uh, luckily enough, I, I did wake up and we never had to have that conversation, my mother and I and Lucy and I. And, uh, and when I woke up, I, I didn't really know where I was. I didn't really understand what was going on. And then the, the doctors turned around to me and said, look, you know, we, we can't keep treating you here. You're going to have to move to another hospital uh, for the rest of your recovery. And we didn't really understand what that meant. You know, we, we asked questions, but they weren't really giving us a clear answer as to why I was being moved. And when I arrived in the, the, the second unit, I was to meet the most beautiful plastic surgeon. She came wafting in and circled around my bed and, you know, said, oh, you know, how are you? How are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm great. Thank you. It was all very nice and polite. And then her second sentence was, well, you're certainly going to lose your left arm above the elbow. Uh, we think we can save your knees, but you'll certainly lose your feet and your ankles. And we have a, an idea as to how we're going to save your right arm. It's pioneering surgery. It's never been tried or even attempted, but we think it can work. And you'll certainly lose a lot of the skin around your face. Alex, I have to ask you, did they at this point tell you, did you know exactly what the ailment was that you were suffering from or were they were they unclear what was going on? Well, when I when I was rushed through the doors in Winchester, we met an anaesthetist there and he asked Lucy and my stepdad lots and lots of questions. Where have I been? What's he been doing? Has he been abroad? No. Um, does he work anywhere near water? No. Um, he's a stay-at-home father. So all these questions are being fired around and we couldn't really understand what they were getting at. And, when the, the question about the water came up, I, I remember trying to get Lucy's attention and say, darling, you must tell them that we have a stretch of river on at one site and a storm drain at another site. So I was always cleaning out the storm drain or walking my Labrador down by the riverbank. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we relayed that information, they assumed that I, I contracted a virus disease. And it was only when it was a change of shift, almost in the first six or seven minutes of me being there, another anaesthetist came in and he had done some he spent some time in South Africa and he looked me over and he said do we know what this chap's got and one of the junior dogs said yes we think it's virus he said no it's not strep a he said I've seen it once before in Cape Town and I'm telling you that's strep so I was treated for strep a so it was only it was just that luck of the shift change that I was treated for the right the right problem Mm -hmm. um so I didn't know what, what that even meant. Lucy and my parents and my friends and family, they didn't know. And it was only when I woke up from life support, they explained what it was and explained about toxic shock syndrome, necrotizing fasciitis, um, septicemia, all the other things that were going on at this point. So, so this is a silly question, but uh, like, so what's going on in your mind right now? Like, are you... Are you terrified? Are you trying to put on a strong face for your kid? Like, wh- where's your mind at? I think my mindset at the beginning was um, confusion. I didn't really understand what the hell was going on. And um, it was only when I got to start to have surgery that I started to understand 
why I had to lose my left arm. You know, the, the strep works its way through your body to try and get to your heart to kill you. Mm-hmm. So I, I understood that my arm had to be amputated first because the strep was closest to my heart there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the, the losing both legs above the knee, I understood it. But more and more information was relayed as time went on. So it was a long process to really get your head around it, you know, what was happening. How long would you say it was through your recovery or maybe even still now where you, where you, how long did it take until you could kind of accept it and be at somewhat of a peace, if that's a a proper word, or at least acceptance of it? Like, did that take years or how long did it take? No, it's quite early on. And I think there was a one defining moment where uh, a really, really good friend of Lucy and I's, he came in to see me on his own. And I just came out of surgery, so I was a little bit groggy. And I think I, I think I just lost my um, – I had a surgery on my right arm, I think, at the time. And he came in, and uh, he was like, oh, how are you doing? I said, oh, you know, just can't understand what's going on. I can't get my head around it. And he said, look, I need to ask Lucy a question. And I knew exactly what he meant. And, you know, he was going to give Lucy the choice as to whether she was going to stay with me and be by my side through this problem or she was going to go. And he said, look, you know, you understand, I have to ask her, you know, she's my best friend and I'm your best friend. Uh, and I, I think it's best that you know right from the start that it's clear moving forward where you stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when he went to ask her, and I remember that sort of five, six minutes, I was lying in the bed thinking, this is, gonna, this is make or break. In my mind, if she was to say no, I'd dread to think where I would have been mm. if I didn't you now. Uh, and if she said yes, then I'd, I'd make my, I'd find a way through it. Um, because I think with her by my side, I knew that I could become a father again. I knew I could reconnect. And I think I, I had no idea about what it meant to have amputations and prosthetics and all the other bits of equipment that came afterwards a long, long time down the road. But I think once I knew that I'd, I'd love in my corner, basically, I think mm. once that was, once that was made clear for me, I think the rest of it just came very, very naturally. That's a that's such a powerful statement. I mean, I I, I don't want to I don't want to just brush over that. You said when I had love in my corner, it yeah. That's that's just that's so magnificent. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a lucky guy, and but I before I fell ill, I was I was doing my best to erode that. You know, I was I was a terrible. I was just an awful partner, really. And I, I wasn't attentive, you know, I, I didn't really pay much attention to the stresses that she was going through. You know, me and my little boy were in this like, like little cocoon in our, in our little pub in the, in the sticks. And I think the strep, surviving the strep, the amputations, and knowing that I wanted to live for Lucy, and I certainly wanted to live for my son. You know, those, those right at the beginning, it was all about Lucy and Sam. You know, if I'd have been a single guy with no strong family, uh, not a huge uh, circle of friends, you know, what would my life be like now? Would I have survived? Would you have wanted to survive? Would you have had the will to survive? Exactly. And, you know, fortunately, uh, I wasn't in that position. And I've never, I've I've often asked myself the question, I'd like to think I would have survived. But who knows? So... Uh, let me uh, let me pivot here to a, another question. So, where do you feel like the first conscious choice was that you made as you were 
being diagnosed or going through surgery or in your recovery where, you know, you tell me where that was, but where was the first choice that you made where you kind of can remember thinking to yourself like, Hey, I'm going to work hard to make it through this for my kid or for my business or for my wife or whatever it was. Like, where, where do you remember that first like actual choice? I think one of the defining uh, moments for me making what was probably the first choice that I was able to make on my own that wasn't reliant on Lucy's and their opinions um, and the healthcare and the, you know, the doctors and nurses, you know, feeding me information. And um, when they, they saved my right arm and the surgery was deemed a success. So, uh, you know, when I left hospital after about seven months, I was a triple amputee. They, they'd saved my right hand and I had two or three months at home my best friend had flown in from uh, France to move in with Lucy and I and Sam. And we were just trying to figure stuff out, you know, that, you know, how I was going to eat, drink, uh, put my clothes on, go to the loop, real simple, simple things. Um, and I remember we got invited, my mate and I, to London. Um, and we went on a TV show and we had a great day out in London. And we got really drunk for the first time since I'd been home. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember getting back in the really early hours of the following morning, about three or four o'clock in the morning. And uh, Lucy being stood in my doorway in my home with her sort of hands on her hips, ready to dish out the biggest telling off I was ever going to receive. And I went to bed that night and I, I remember lying in bed and looking at my arm and then rolling over and going to sleep. And about three or four hours later, I woke up and usually I would have to roll over and push myself up with my right hand. So I tried that and it, it, it didn't work and I couldn't understand why. So I, I rolled on the other side and I, I got up and as I raised my right arm, I'd snapped it clean in half. You did and what? You, wait, wait, wait. You did what? I, I'd snapped my arm clean in half. Oh my God. And I, the visual of that was just mortifying. And Lucy was looking at it and she was freaking out. Um, and I was rushed back into hospital where I met with my plastic surgery team and they were doing all sorts of tests and they put the arm in a cast and lots and lots of bloods were taken and swabs and everything else. And I just caught one of the younger uh, junior doctors that was working on me at the time. I caught her eye as she was leaving my room and she was crying. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember that. I'm thinking, that's strange. Why, why is she crying? And about six, seven hours later, I was in a waiting room and my plastic surgeon came in to see me and she said, and she knelt in front of me, bless her. And, you know, she was like a god in my eyes you know what she carried out and how she saved my life and just how how she handled everything you know she was just incredible she was mesmerizing i'd say that, that lady absolutely mesmerizing so i had a huge amount of respect for her and she knelt in front of me and she was crying and i knew then it wasn't going to be a good you know good end of day and she said look you know you you snatch your arm clean enough and um, we could try and pin it. We could try and, you know, fuse it, put a rod in it. Um, it would mean another two and a half, three years of rehab, or we can amputate. And without even thinking about it, I said, amputate. I said, I do not want to spend the next three years of my life looking at something that may or may not work when I have an amazing three and a half, nearly four-year-old at home who's been through something quite horrific. And same for Lucy and all my family, all my friends. And I didn't want to be putting them through another two and a half, three years of 
unable to use a wheelchair, unable to use prosthesis, unable to um, just do those simple tasks that I was learning to do. And well, no, I had to go home and discuss it with them. And I went home and I said to Lisa, Look, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not prepared to, to take a chance on it. I know that I can, I can forge a life without any limbs. You know, I've done my research into prosthesis. So that, that clear choice, although rather brave at the beginning, when that hand was amputated or the arm was amputated, it transpired that if I hadn't have broken my arm that night, uh, the strep had got into my bone. Now the bone, the strep was working its way through the bone and it was trying to get into my heart. Now we don't know how long the strep had been in the bone, but so we're guessing. It saved your life then. It yeah. If I hadn't have broken that arm, if I hadn't have amputated, the likelihood would have been that it would have certainly taken my arm to my shoulder or about two weeks later, it would have got to my heart. That's incredible. So that was, that was the right choice. And, and do you, do you feel like that was that a turning point for you in terms of your mindset about all this? Like when did you go and start your, the Alex Lewis trust? When did you start the wild wheelchair expeditions, all these other amazing things that you've done? Like when, when did you have the strength to start thinking that way? I think the strength to start thinking that way came probably about two or three months after I came out having lost my right arm. And uh, I'd, I'd been to rehab and I started to look at prosthetics and I started to see how they weren't that great, really. And I, uh, I flew out to Oklahoma, to a clinic over in Oklahoma, to find a bit more out about the cost of these prostheses. Um, I couldn't get any information in the UK. I'd say to, I'd say to my prosthetist, look, how much is this going to cost me? You know, you can't afford to give me the equipment that I require. Mm-hmm. How much money do I need to make that happen? Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't tell me. So I, I, I was picked up by a military charity and they, they flew me out to America. And I got, a, I got a life quote in this clinic and it was about three and a half million dollars, I think. And we had no money. You know, we'd lost one business. We were really struggling. And I remember flying back thinking, this can't be right. You know, there's, there's got to be more people like me going through the same thing. And so when I came back, we set up the Annexus Trust and we started to raise money. People were doing the most incredible things. And, uh, you know, the support, the incredible support from my community and the wider community, the hospitality industry, all the people that we worked with in the past was just sublime. And I was, I was picked up on a cloud, really. You're picked up by what I couldn't hear. I, I felt I was like riding a cloud. Ah. So many people supporting me. But I, I had to make a choice as to whether I wanted to work in charity or did I, do, did I want to do something else? And Lucy, Lucy gave me this kind of very kind of uh, stringent comment right at the beginning. She said, right, you've got two years to get your life sorted out and get back to work. She was very matter of fact. She goes, I'm not having you sat around the house moping after two years. You know, this, you've got one line. And I think... Lucy and Sam were the, the spur to get me to question why were prosthetics so expensive? You know, can, am I able to go hand cycling? What sport can I do? What's, what's available to me? And the more we looked into it, the more we realised that there was nothing, really. We had to forge our own path uh, in, this, in this situation. You know, in, in America, there are quadruplementities, and I, I had the pleasure of meeting quite a few at the um, clinic that I went to. But they weren't kayaking, they weren't cycling. Well, what, what are they doing? And why aren't they doing what I think is possible? 
And it kind of led me down these incredible um, avenues where I met amazing people that were willing to give me a chance to, you know, do you want to go skydiving? Yeah, let's give it a go. Uh, how's that going to work? And, you know, I, I went to a skydiving test centre and they said, well, we've never done a tandem, a tandem jump with somebody like you. I said, what do you mean somebody like me? And they said, well, quadruple amputee, we've never done it. I said, well, we're going to do it today. And we figured it out. And, you know, six hours later, I was... 14,000 feet in, in, in midair, loving it, loving every second of it. Alex, uh, you might find this interesting. I don't know if you know this person, but I, I did an interview recently with a gentleman named Travis Mills. Are you familiar with him? Is he the, the injured lad, uh, the veteran? Yeah, the veteran. He's a quadruple amputee also. Yeah. Yeah, and he's uh, he also you know does some some interesting things with um, you know helping his community, um, and he's also I mean he's not a stand up comedian, but he's just like he's very has used humor in a huge way to get through his. Uh, so he makes a lot of fun of himself uh, in yeah. a way that I think throws his audiences off at first. But it, you know he's an interesting guy. So yeah, I just he you when you talked about jumping out of the plane made me think of uh, that interview I did as well. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think what's really great, I think, in in the, the age that we lost our limbs, is that there is a lot of research and development going into what can be made to make it better. And I think I was quite empowered by that. And you know, but I also thought that as much as I want to do personal development, like skydiving, like kayaking, cycling, I wanted to uh, leave a, a legacy. That was a very obvious choice for me to make mm -hmm. you know i said please i said you know yes i will go back to work i don't know what i'm going to do for a living but i will go back to work but you know after two years i thought you know i've done some great trips i've been to some amazing places but what what am i what am i doing it all for you know yes i'm doing it for lucy and sam but i just i felt that perhaps there was a wider audience that i could help so, so what do you think your legacy is now like if your legacy had to be put in stone today what is it I think my legacy would be that through the speaking that I do and all the children, all the businesses, the thousands and thousands of people, um, all the people that have seen the documentary that was made on us, um, our, our reach has had over 130, 40 million. You know, and I, what I find is people send emails every day, messages every day, every day of my life since I fell ill. And it is always people who aren't disabled, it's people with mental health problems mm -hmm. and it's those people that are struggling to get out of bed in the morning that are inspired by you that just think Do you know what if he's doing that then i can do something with my life well and, and I, mean, I, I i'm sorry go ahead alex i didn't mean to cut you off i think, I think if anything you know if i was to slip off the plate tomorrow i know that i've helped a lot of people you know and i think that's the the greatest legacy anyone can leave to know that you've helped so many people yeah and i um I resonate with that because as I had mentioned to you before we started the interview, my, my parents are Holocaust survivors and they've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people and they get so many letters from kids yeah. and adults alike who are just touched and inspired by their story. So I know how much appreciation and energy they get from that. So I can only imagine the same is true for you. Uh, question, question is, um, so if you look back, this this happened to you in 2013, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you look back to 2012, Alex. Yeah. Would would he have ever thought if all this were to happen, 
all th- this, this illness were to happen and all the surgeries and all the struggle were to happen. If someone were to tell you that, do you think 2012 Alex would have thought that 2020 Alex would look like you, meaning in terms of all the things you've done? <laughs> no way. <laughs> 2012, 2012 Alex was just soaked in Guinness and white wine. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, just, I just didn't do anything. I was just, it was a shameful waste of a life really. Um, although, you know, doing it wrong, being a stay-at-home dad with my little boy at that point was, was amazing. You know, by far the best job I will ever have ever had. Um, but yeah, I could, I couldn't even dream of being the guy that I am today. But then, no way, not in my wildest dreams that I think that I could. You didn't think you were. You didn't think you were going to be this. You didn't think you could be this strong. Absolutely no. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And I think, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? We we've all been through bad times. You know, some people's worst time is when they lost their business or uh, some people's worst time is when they lost a, a, a pet or a, a family member. You know, you, re- you really don't know just how resilient you can be until you're really thrown into the, the bear pit, really. And I think, you know, I, I didn't understand quite what sort of network of friends I had. I didn't really understand quite how much Lucy loved me, how much my son loved me. You know, and, I, and lying in that hospital bed for months on end was just incredible, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I just the outpouring of love and, you know, constant people coming to see me all the time. Our room was just filled with laughter every single day, yeah. even after having lost my legs and my arm. You know, at the points there would be 12, 14 people crowded around my bed and we'd be giggling and joking about the days gone by, you know, what am I going to do in the future? And it was buoyant. You know, we were, it sounds weird, but we were happy people mm-hmm. in that hospital. And, you know, we really bought into just uh, the impact and the uh, emotional involvement that the, the doctors and the nurses and the surgeons and the healthcare assistants, everything that they did for us, you know, has never, ever been forgotten. Mm-hmm. I speak year on year in, year out with the NHS and do award ceremonies. I just think that the guys that saved my life will be forever my idols you know because they gave me the second chance that i was clearly in desperate need of so so your story is poignant and powerful at any time and obviously i invited you on this show months ago before we knew anything about the coronavirus pandemic that's spreading around the world uh so it's all the more timely that you're here on the show because your story is so powerful and people around the world who are listening you know, are going through something that might be one of the hardest things they've gone through, right? I'm not trying to draw a comparison to your situation necessarily, but, you know, whether it's the health scare itself or the economic fallout or any other, or just the unknown, the fear of the unknown, you know, people are in an unusual place right now in the world. And and this show will, I'm sure, be up in a few weeks, so it'll be timely. What's your message to people who are scared and uncomfortable and worried right now? I think at this moment, the best thing we can all do is reconnect. Mm-hmm. You know, how many, how many times through the year do you say, this, say to yourself, I must give so-and-so a call. I must, I must do that. I'll text them or, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll schedule an email. I'll, I'll, set, I'll get in contact with them at some point. Mm-hmm. And then nine times out of 10, something else comes up and you forget to do it. Another month slips by 
you know, I think as we stand at the moment and we are, we're all connected in, in this amazing day and age with the internet and, you know, all sorts of manners of um, ways of communicating, I think the best thing all of us can do is to talk to each other. We can all keep each other buoyant by communicating. You know, the, the whole, the, the self-isolation sounds so final. Uh, you know, it's a terrible phrase, really, because we're, we're not, none of us are in isolation because we can all still communicate with each other. And I think sometimes that, that gets forgotten. I've never done more uh, Zoom get-togethers with family and friends and business associates as I've been doing in the last uh, two weeks. I mean, I'm just, I feel like I'm on exactly. Zoom, uh, Zoom all day long. So one of the things that stands out for me, uh, still talking about the current, the coronavirus situation, and I'm curious how this resonates for you. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a leader in the business world and I have this podcast and I do some coaching and consulting and I'm a father and all these things. And I'd say 80 or 90% of the time, I'm just focused on like taking the right next positive action. Like I can't control the virus and I can't control the economy, but I can take whatever the next positive action is. Uh, and, then, and then like 10 or 15% of the time, I'm, I'm worried or anxious like I think a lot of people are. And when I get worried and anxious, what I do, and I'm just curious how this resonates with you, I kind of think to myself, who's watching me right now that I care about? Like, are my kids watching how I'm reacting to this? Is my wife watching how I'm reacting to this? Are my business associates? So who do I want to be since they're watching me? And so even though I'm anxious and feeling paralyzed or whatever, I'm like, yeah, but they're watching. So I need to, I want to be, I choose to be the person I want them to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've, I've kind of, in the last six years, you know, I've kind of become into my fitness like I never was before. I never really understood the whole uh, mental aspect of staying fit and healthy mm -hmm. uh, because I was, I was so opposite to that. Um, whereas now, you know, I find myself, I, I, everything I do, is to dispel the myth that the disabled can't be inclusive. Mm -hmm. So even in this situation, you know, I, I don't want to be just sat at home. I don't want to be just sat around watching TV. I want my son to see that I can still work out in the gym, that I can muck about on a skateboard in the garden with him, that I can do all the, the fatherly things despite being able to go and out. And jump out of a plane. I mean, I haven't done that. <laughs> well, I'd say if you, you, you've got to do it. I'd say, there you go then. At the end of this uh, self-isolation, the first thing you should be doing is booking a tandem skydive. That's a cool idea. Yeah, honestly, that one minute of free fall and it just changes your life, changes ah. your whole uh, attitude towards life. I love so you're it. right about you know, being the person you want to be. Um, you know, we, we made choices years ago, Lucy and I, that this wasn't going to define who we are. You know, the, the strep, the disability, the, the, the loss of limbs, you know, it's just one part of, of us as a family. So is there a process for you? So, you, you know, you've, you've brought up, you know, all these difficult choices that you've had to make about, you know, your attitude, about your recovery, about, you know, how you're going to show up for business and for your, for the Alex Lewis trust, et cetera. 
is there a decision process that you go through or is it just kind of like, Hey, this is my gut or Hey, I got me and my wife are going to talk about this and make the decision together. Like what's, what does your thinking process look like when you're making these massive choices? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of it is our, is our gut. And, you know, I've always been self-employed prior to falling ill. Lucy's always been uh, self-employed. And, well, certainly self-employed for the last 10, 12 years. So a lot of it is gut instinct. Um, but I think since falling ill, a lot of my choices have been, sorry, what's the question? Yeah, I'll do it. Yes, let's do it. What does that entail? Yeah, let's try it. I haven't said no to anything. You have know, you ever I seen think. the movie, the Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man? No, I haven't said that. Okay. It's, I mean, whether you like Jim Carrey or not, you should watch that movie because he, he, <laughs> he uh, goes to like some self-help workshop and he has to say yes to everything. And he says yes to like the most absurd, you know, comedic things you can imagine. So you might get a kick out of it. <laughs> well, that's, that, sounds, that sounds pretty clear and, and quite present really with us. I mean, we, you know, if someone said to me, do you want to uh, cycle up Ethiopia's highest mountain um, in a in a buggy made by some students in a university? You know, I would have laughed that out of my pub eight, seven years ago, eight years ago. You know, and all the all the series of yeses that we've said along the way has got us to some incredible countries to meet some incredible people. And I, I mean, and it, it just excites me about the future. I think all, all the yeses and everything that we said yes to. It just it's just made us so buoyant about moving forward that once this coronavirus does move on, there is still so much to do. I mean, I you know we're we're making plans at the moment. We're raising we're going to try and raise two and a half million pounds next year for a, a MRI unit for a child's hospital in the South of England. And then the year after that, I intend to uh, hand cycle across the Atlantic with my best friend. You know, we've got so much to look forward to. You know, some amazing it. amazing things. I and now. It. I think where we said yes so many times, now we're now we're making up what we want to do. You know, we're going to people saying, "What has anybody ever cycled across the Atlantic?" No. Oh yeah, someone someone did do it in 2015. Did he have arms and legs? Yes. Well, let's make it difficult. Let's let's try and get a guy with no arms and legs across the Atlantic. I love it. And then maybe you know maybe we do something with a gyrocopter the year after that, or something in flight. You know, maybe the first quadruple amputee in space. Who knows? But there's you know, we live in we live in some incredible times and some really positive times. Sounds like you need to reach out reach out to Richard Branson and uh, you know use some of his resources to do some more incredible things. <laughs> well, we, we've got there's quite a few of these guys that they have been in contact, and I think things will obviously you know who knows what the next three to six months are going to hold, but in the next few years, yeah, I definitely intend to do some some pretty optimal things. So. Um, You've been, you know, so inspiring and, and, and um, I, I think opened a lot of people's eyes to what's possible. Just a couple of co- closing questions. Um, when you look at all the experiences you've had with people who are also in, in wheelchairs or have some physical limitation, what, what, what's a one or two stories or experiences that stand out that you've helped create for someone else? Um, certainly, the, the wheelchair factory in Ethiopia was uh, an incredible project to be involved with, and it's still, you know, we're still involved with it now. You know, so we're the factory that we we raised some money in London last year, mm-hmm. um, and we went out to Ethiopia last uh, October, and we built a, a wheelchair 
facility there. Uh, we're making wheelchairs for uh, amputees and polio sufferers over in Ethiopia. And then what we've done there is create a network between Ethiopia and England, uh, universities that I work with here. And then when we go to Mongolia, uh, either this year or next year, we will then uh, look at creating a factory over in Mongolia that may make assisted devices for amputees to make them uh, able to ride horses, ride motorbikes. Um, obviously, the Gobi is enormous, so wheelchairs aren't really uh, common over there. But again, it's creating... How many wheelchairs has that place put out? By the end of October next year, sorry, October this year, we would have made about, made about 250. Wow. And then we're opening two more sites in Ethiopia. Uh, and then we've been, Tanzania have got in contact, um, UAE have got in contact. So I think the, the affordability of anything to do with disabled is, is crazy. You know, you, you put a, uh, say I want to buy a stylus uh, from Amazon and it's six pounds. But if I want to go and buy a stylus from a, a site that sells disabled products, it'd be 66 pounds. Um, and, this, you know, we I understand, I sit in a wheelchair that's about 8,000 pounds. You know, we make our wheelchairs over in Ethiopia for $200. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a Rolls-Royce wheelchair. It's certainly not a Lamborghini wheelchair. But if it gives you the ability to leave your home to go and have a coffee over the road. It's life-changing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, as I told you, I, um, I, have, I always have a quote for my guests, so I want to get your uh, response to this. Adversity is like a strong wind. It tears away from us all but the things that cannot be torn so that we see ourselves as we really are. Nice. So, Very nice. So who are you now? Uh, that that strong wind has come through your life? Well, for me, I often, I often use this quote at the end of all the talks I give, but I'm at a point in my life now where if you were one of the world's most foremost surgeons and you'd been a, you created a, a way that you could give me my legs and arms back, I wouldn't take them. Mm. Because what I've achieved in the last six years outweighs everything that I achieved in the first 33 years of my life or 34 mm-hmm. years of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've become a better father, a better partner, a better boss, just a, I don't know whether I'm a, a better guy. I was pretty chilled out then. I'm still pretty chilled out now. But you, but you, I, you, you like who you are better now than you ever have. Absolutely. Well, I look at, I look at myself in the mirror and what I see looking back at me, I think, do you know what? You, you, you've done something. You know, you're making a difference. And I think we all have it within us and we all do it in our own separate way. But for me, I had to do something massive. And luckily enough, something massive did come along and it shaped me into something that I could never, ever see never happening. And, you know, even my mother, my own mother <laughs> looks at me now as if to say, my goodness, son, I could never see you being like this in a million years. When and I'm you... happy. You know, that's important. You've got to be happy. That is, that is, uh, extremely important and extremely powerful and to you know use your words you've you've had a massive effect on all the people you've touched and all the people listening to our show today i'm speaking to alex lewis you can learn more about the alex lewis trust at alex-lewis.co.uk uh there you can see his documentary 
links to his social media and get involved and help and be inspired by this amazing individual. Alex, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. All this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.